You're listening to the Jazz Session with my dad, Jason Crane. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. I just mentioned right before the show starts that if it sounds a little weird, the beginning part, it's because I am on the road, I'm recording this introduction in a hotel room in Pennsylvania, and I schlepped all of my gear all the way to Pennsylvania so that I could record the intro to this show, and then I forgot the cable that connects the recorder to my laptop. So I'm just doing it through my laptop's, you know, terrible built-in microphone. So, excuse the sound quality, the interview that follows was conducted using my regular gear, and it sounds just fine. So, uh, it's just this you have to suffer through. Anyway, the show is sponsored by Matt Rock, Modat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton, and I believe this is episode 367. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Dave Rabel designed the logo, and you'll find him at twitter.com slash Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz has a widget for the show. Go to allaboutjazz.com and type in Jazz Session Widget into the search box. You'll get a little piece of code that you can paste into your website, and if you do, it'll display the latest episode of the show. And let me know if you do that, because I'll mention you in my newsletter, which goes out each week, and which you can get by going to thejazzsession.com and clicking on Mailing List at the top of the page. Please become a member of the show. Thanks to Sarah Starr and Chris Monson, who've recently become members, neither of them in the U.S., which is very cool, adding to our international contingent. You can join for as little as $10 a month or $110 a year, and there are levels that go up from there. Please also review the show in iTunes. It just takes a second. Go to the iTunes store and search for Jazz Session Podcast. You can give it a star rating up to five, and you can also type in some comments. And if you do that, it just helps the show go up in the rankings, and that makes it easier for other people to find it. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, D as in David. You can also find my poetry over at jasoncrane.org. I post poems there on that blog, and I also sell my book there, Unexpected Sunlight, which came out on Foothills Publishing in 2010. My guest today is Chris Brubeck, and let's just get it out of the way. Yes, he's Dave Brubeck's son. We met recently and had a very wide-ranging interview, conducted actually in a pretty cool location. You'll hear about all of that and some of Chris's music with his band Triple Play from their new album recorded live at the Zankel Music Center in Saratoga Springs, New York. Here's a track from that record, and then my conversation with Chris Brubeck. Well, it's time to party, don't you think? It's a little bit of Mississippi party music. Woo! What'd you say? I said, Woo!
I've never conducted an interview in a space quite like this. You can probably hear just from the echo on my voice. We're in uh, the, what's called the portrait room at the uh, Museum of Natural History here in New York City, sitting under a very large portrait of President Theodore Roosevelt. And I'm here with a composer, a multi-instrumentalist, Chris Brubeck. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, and I've never done an interview from a room quite like this. No. So I'm, <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. And we're staring at this portrait, which looks, looks a lot like the... Uh, cover of the Edmund Morris uh, trilogy. Absolutely. Quite amazing. Now, not coincidentally, poking out from your travel bag is uh, the score for a piece called Roosevelt in Cowboy Land. Can you talk a little bit about that, which is not where I intended to start, but since we're here, we may as well start <laughs> yeah, here Somehow there, yeah. the, the gods seem to want us to talk about it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, it was a piece I was commissioned to write um, by the Bismarck Symphony Orchestra and, and to tell the story of how Roosevelt got out to North Dakota. And I, I guess I won't go into the story, even though it's quite fascinating. But if, if a Hollywood writer wrote the story of how he ended up there, you'd say, nah, that's too much. You know, <laughs> it's just too tragic and too amazing. And Absolutely. But it definitely was a turning point in his life where I was trying to explain to someone, I said, yeah, it's, a, it's like if Thurston Howell III became a tough cowboy, became John Wayne. I mean, it makes no sense, but somehow it happened. And yeah. When he became president, he often looked back and said, you know, those days of me, uh, you know, he came from a blue-blooded background of the aristocrat in, of uh, New York, and somehow intermingling with the lowly cowboys is what really toughened him up, and in a way made him start looking out for the little people. It was in his nature, and all of us can thank that experience for the fact that we have you know, state parks and federal lands, because he knew that the robber barons would uh, take care. Uh, take over all these things and exploit all the minerals and just, you know, rob John Q. public blind so there yeah. was nothing left for us to enjoy. And thank God the big corporations have changed since those exactly. days. Exactly. <laughs> Everything's fine now, Chris. I don't know right. why we were worried. You know, it's really funny if you've, uh, you know, in the last couple of months, Obama started to uh, uh, use Roosevelt as a lot of reference. I mean, mm. I mean, it is, of course, ironic because, you know, <laughs> You know, now we have Ronald Reagan, the demigod of the Republican Party, would be considered a socialist. You know? right. <laughs> and Roosevelt, God knows what he was. You know, exactly, the yeah. Spawn of the devil being Republican. Yeah. Who stuck up for, you know, just the average guy. You know, hey, to, even Nixon wanted a national guaranteed wage and started the EPA. So he's yeah. even a socialist by uh, yeah, today, right. today's by, standards. By now. So now that we've lost a, a third of your audience. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, not this audience. Trust me. Most of them are in Europe anyways. So I think it's, okay. it's fine. They're totally on board. Okay. Let me ask you. So uh, to try and ask you a smart question out of the unexpected Roosevelt start, how 
how, in fact, do you take something as uh, not inherently musical as the story of how a blue blood ends up a cowboy and turn it into an orchestral piece? Where do you even start? Where does the where do the musical cues come from? Where do you, where do you, where do you, how do you turn that story into something people can play? Well, that's a very deep and intelligent question. And, uh, I don't, you know, I don't know how it starts. I have some sort of intuition that works and I have to back up by saying I wouldn't have been writing a piece about Roosevelt if I hadn't written two other pieces sort of similar to that. Mm. The first one that got me, although that makes more sense is I was given a commission to write, about an American figure for a narrator, no, for actors in orchestra, not singers, though. And it was my idea, and I said, how about let's do the autobiography of Mark Twain. So that was my first experience with doing a, a long and large piece. And it's very, the closest to thing is the conductor said, it's like opera without singing, because you had people in costume. But, you know, Mark Twain is such a rich source of, uh, of humor and intelligence and social and political commentary. So it was beyond even a, a Lincoln portrait type piece where there was just narration. It was actually, there were acted out dramatic yeah. roles for the performers. Yeah, and really surrealistic, you know, kind of stuff. There was a guy that was Mark Twain, but the person that was sort of uh, Huck Finn was also Mark Twain as a, as a kid. And, and, you know, and there was a, there was a gym and, and for a while it wandered into the land of the Duke and the King, which I always loved when I was growing up, the Royal sure. Nutsuch and all that kind of stuff. But Mark Twain, um, believed a lot in the magic of dreams and astral travel. And uh, so that means I could really take it into Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds <laughs> Land, too. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, that was one piece. And then the next piece I, I, I wrote uh, that was kind of a narrative thing with the orchestra was a, a piece called Quiet Heroes. And in a nutshell, I had read a book uh, called Flags of Our Father. Mm. Um, and at the same time I read the book... Uh, I was reading it, and for some reason, I'm just was it was I was seeing like, wow, this is a four movement piece. This interesting thing about discovering the secret of the father upon his death—that he was one of the guys in the famous flag raising photo—and then movement two. I should mention late. this is at Iwo Jima during yeah. World War Two. Right. right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that then you know who were the six guys that that were in there, and and they each had their different kind of music. There were different kinds of places, and. The, the third movement, it's dark, it's Hall the Mountain King, it's gnomes and elves and Japanese and sulfur and misery and death and flamethrowers, and that's a movement. And the last movement, uh, you know, how does this statue get made? Well, actually, how do these guys get, get exploited across America? You know, and I, and I sort of said, yeah, that's sort of jazz parade music, and, and it's tragic, and you revisit the themes, and they all die. And, um, you know, I mean, that just, I just, that just was hitting me as I'm reading this as a book. And then luckily enough, uh, my life is, my whole career has been this, like this series of weird coincidences. So I just got through reading the book. I land in Appleton, Wisconsin. I'm playing the trombone concerto I wrote there. And that went well. And after the gig, I'm drinking beer with the conductor. And he said, well, what's the next piece you want to write? And I said, Dad, the hero of this whole book, this guy named John Bradley from Appleton, Wisconsin. And the conductor didn't even know that. So he said, oh, I'm sure he's got friends in town. We'll figure out how to commission you to write this piece. And that became funny uh, because um, my group, uh, Triple Play, which is mm -hmm. you know, in the Arthur Zankel CD, was playing at the Monterey Jazz Festival. After we played a set, the stage manager said, um, there's someone that really wants to meet you, and I know you'll want to meet him. So it's like all like this mystery and surprise. So I said, oh, well, okay. So I, I come off stage, and I see this guy with a white mustache. And I, I said, who did? Oh, my God, that's... 
that's that's the oatmeal dude. That's Wilfred Brimley, <laughs> or, or the guy from Cocoon, or <laughs> the guy from uh, you know John Carpenter's The Thing, or right. whatever you want to say he's from, you know. And uh, so I'm talking to him, and and believe it or not, he's a good jazz singer, and he loves. I'm seriously loves jazz. And so we got to know each other a little bit. And he it's said, funny because it sounded like you just said Wilfred Brimley is a good jazz singer. I did. I really did. And he <laughs> You're really, really readjusting my worldview here. I, to, I, I know. I it, it's really strange. <laughs> and I thought with that gravelly voice of his yeah. that he would sing, look, I'm, like maybe he's like Joe Cocker singing. Jazz. Right, right. But it's not. It's like a good, you know, straight ahead baritone-ish. Wow. Kind of, but it's good. I mean, it's, you know. Better than Jim Neighbors singing pop tunes <laughs> well, by a long shot. You know yeah, I mean? one would hope. And he had even done records with the you know hip jazz musicians that I'd heard of and orchestras and all that kind of stuff. Wow. So anyhow, he asked me what I was doing, other things. He was interested in all kinds of music, and uh, I told him about the Mark Twain thing. He really dug that, and then uh, and then I said, well, the new idea for pieces is this thing about flags of our fathers. And I knew the second that I met him. It was so weird that I met him. I said, I, I got a feeling like this guy's being thrown in front of my life path for some weird reason. So I said, have you read the book, Flag Third Father? Yeah, I read it. And I, I was a Marine. Or not, well, I'm wrong, because they never say I was a Marine. I am a Marine, because once a Marine, always a Marine. My apologies, Wilfred, for retelling the story improperly. But then he said, well, that's a hell of a story. You know, how are you going to tell it? And I said, well, I'm going to have a narrator. And before I could get the words in my mouth, he said, narrator. Why, I'd crawl through hot coals to be a part of that. In that famous voice of his. And it happened. I mean, he's been the narrator of that piece ever since, which led to um, someone doing that piece who happened to also conduct an orchestra in Bismarck, North Dakota, saying, Chris knows how to do these narration pieces. Now, this is a very long-winded, circuitous way of answering your question. So the, the first thing, like with Mark Twain, you know, I wanted to to say, well, what, what makes these guys tick? So you never think about what are Mark Twain's parents like? Mm -hmm. You know, so then you start reading up. And I started reading up on Roosevelt in the same way. And then, you know, the, there was there was this inner boy in him that, that you know, when he was a little kid, he was like a, you know, junior nerd taxidermist kid, you know, and he was very sick, but he, he you know, I imagine New York City at that time and that with the 18... Uh, well, actually, the 1860s. Mm -hmm. You know, pollution must have been terrible here. If you weren't up to your knees in horse poop, it would be, you know, just coal this or that yeah. running away, and he had horrible asthma. But it talked about, you know, how he escaped his reality was, uh, but he escaped his reality by reading about David Livingston and Lewis and Clark and all that. So that meant to me, like, he needs an adventure theme, you know? So that's how that spoke to me. And then, um, and then it's a theme in terms of the craftiness of a composer that, you know, re returns in different guises throughout. But that speaks of the inner boy in him. And when he got to college, I sort of looked it up and I said, well, what was happening by the 1880s when he was in college at Harvard? What would have been the hip thing to listen to? Well, it was cakewalk music was starting to happen. So and that's a little pre-ragtime. So I started checking out what that was about. And that sort of determined a musical direction. And I know from Roosevelt's own writings, he actually wrote the foreword to, you know, the famous uh, musicologist Alan Lomax. Well, there's Alan Lomax Sr. started collecting cowboy stuff, and Roosevelt wrote the foreword to the first edition of that because he loved the directness and the storytelling of cowboy music. So that ended up being reflected in, there's an interlude when he's out on the, on, on the prairie by himself where I sort of do this uh, 
instrumentals thing where I'm like weaving together Red River Valley, Streets of Laredo, all these things, you know, sort of uh, weaving around. And I don't know, there's, I look for specifics if I can find them in the music. And, you know, I'm not, you know, it, believe me, it doesn't sound like John Cage wrote this piece or Philip Glass, you know, I, tr I try to, because what would that really have to do with Roosevelt sure. at his time? Uh, on the other hand, it's not completely grounded in only music from the 1880s. Right. <laughs> but there is sort of a, a flavor of, you know, rather conservative, but hopefully exciting. And then when he gets out on the des on the uh, on the plains, and he writes in his diary about it's so monotonous and it rolls on. I mean, to me, that totally meant I could write something that was very kind of far out, kind of polytonal, rolling rolling chords and waves of motion and. Um, you know, so I, I wasn't totally in a box, but it was in a, I was in a box of trying to tell a story with whatever music I thought helped tell the story. They used to tell me I was building a dream And so I followed the mile When there was earth to plow or guns to bear I was always right there on the job they used to tell me I was building a dream With peace and glory ahead Why should I be standing in line Just waiting for bread Once I built a railroad Made it run Made it race against time once I built a railroad, but now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower to the sun with brick and rivet and lime. Once I built a tower, but now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? I've talked to people who, you know, have done film scoring as their primary occupation, and the way they describe how they do what they do sounds exactly like what you're talking about. I mean, you're effectively scoring a film for which you're also writing the script that's being performed by the narrator, and the only thing we're lacking is someone filming it. But other than that, it sounds like a movie, basically. Right. And, well, the, you know... It, it's it's the functionality of it, sure. Uh, that and it and it's really kind of frustrating because um, if you're dealing with the world of uh, you know critics who usually have their own axe to grind, of course the easiest thing to say about this piece or the Ansel Adams piece I wrote with my father is like, it sounds like a film score. Well, I'm not trying to sound like a film score, but if you're trying to do things like add to the scene of the narration or not detract from it, that's what I'm saying. You know. Maybe, maybe, you know, he's talking about being at Harvard and maybe Philip Glass would have some music that sound like Sputnik or something, you know. And now maybe that critic would go like, oh, isn't this fantastic? The music has nothing to do with what's going on on stage, you know. <laughs> he would be the one guy out of a thousand people that felt that way. Unfortunately, right. he'd write for the New York Times perhaps, you know. But uh, that's the thing is I just, I, I think it's because I'm a performer and I don't have tenure. Uh, where I can write music that no one would possibly like, but I'll still, you know, pull down 120 a year and have insurance. I tend to write music that I think people will actually like, 
you know, at the risk of offending people who think that's, you know, might be a bad idea to write music that people like. Yeah, I don't, I was going to say, I don't really see it as a criticism to say that what you've done is evoked your subject. Right. That seems to be the point as far as, far as I'm concerned. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, we live in an upside down world. Yeah. Well, and I want to, um, this may seem like a strange segue, but actually I want to bring this to the Live at the Zankle Music Center record with Triple Play, which is, again, to me, it strikes me as an album kind of without pretension by a band that is also doing exactly that thing. That is saying, this is music we like, and we think through our passion, we can communicate that passion and the joy of this music to you, the audience. It feels to me, I mean, it's just like pure joy coming out of the record. And I wonder if oh, that is that, that same philosophy kind of applying in a very different realm of performance. Well, thank you. I'm so glad that, that you feel it that way. It's, I mean, it's very sincere music. I mean, it might be ridiculous, but it's ridiculously sincere. Or put it this way. There's not one molecule of us that thinks that this is going to be a hit or that Lady Gaga is going to ask me to come on stage with her and wear a meat dress. I mean, right. it's just, you know, all the pretension of big time success doesn't matter. And it's about three guys that respect each other's musicianship. Uh, you know, I've been playing with Mad Cat, the harmonica player, you know, since I was like, you know, 18 years old or whatever in different bands and stuff. And he's just, I just love making music with him. And uh, that's the way we feel about Joel and, uh, as opposed to my other group, the Brubeck Brothers Quartet, which is really obviously uh, a jazz group, and you can peg, sure. peg that for what it is. I mean, triple play. I'm, actually, you're an intelligent guy. You tell me what it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny. I once heard a band described as chamber blues, and uh, I was for part of this record, I was thinking that. But there's parts that that doesn't really apply to. I mean, it. I, I don't. It doesn't feel to me like this band is holding some sacred ground that it's really trying to stake out. It just seems to go where you guys want it to go, which I really dig about it. Yeah, yeah, and that's that is basically what happens. One, two, one, two, three. Talk about, uh, tell us who's in the band. And I know this band actually had its origins with some other players. Right. Can you just talk about a little bit about the evolution of Triple Blood? Yeah, well, um, there was a, a fellow named Bill Crowfoot who played banjo, and he was completely, you know, I mean, they broke the mold after him. I mean, he's what a character he was. And uh, he loved playing Bach on the banjo. And, and, and um, Bill and I worked together, even starting when I was a kid. I wrote some, some 
cello arrangements for a record he did called Poetry and Song. I think it was like 14 years old. We were literally neighbors, and I used to babysit his kids. And one of the great things about Bill is he always liked to give young musicians a chance. And uh, when I was like 17, I had graduated from high school, and I actually went on the road with him and his musical partner, a guy named Steve Addis, and you know, did like 100 concerts. And that was so cool because the Vietnam War was going on, and I didn't know if I was going to end up over there. And at least I had one year to pursue my childhood fantasy. I want to be a professional musician like my dad, you know. Right. So we did that, and then I sort of drifted into my different rock and roll groups, and then the rock and roll groups hit the wall, and then I started playing with my dad. And, and then when I came to the point where I became a father, uh, and this is not in any way to insult my dad, but he, you know, he sort of belonged to the world. He was on tour so much that uh, he was gone a lot, and I was in his band for 12 years, so I know exactly how much he was on the road. But when I started having my own children, I sort of wanted to be around for them more. Mm -hmm. So that's when I started turning more to composing and started playing more with Bill Crowfoot again. Um, and then Bill Crowfoot and I added Joel Brown, where we were a trio for a while. Then poor Bill got sick, got cancer, and died. And we had contracts to fulfill, so we called the people and said, you know, Bill's too sick to play this concert that we cut signed a contract a year ago. You know, but I have a great friend who's a singer and one of the best harmonica players in the world, Peter Madcat Ruth. Will you accept us coming, uh, the three of us? And we did those concerts. We looked at each other like saying, like, we'd be absolutely crazy if we didn't keep this group going because everyone loved it. You know? Sure. So that's sort of how it happened. How does repertoire find its way into this band? Sometimes if we're working on a record, I'll see a need to write for something like this. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm actually better, I mean, I used to do a lot of just writing songs, like in my, in my rock and rolly days. Um, and now it's like if I'm working a record and say, we need a song like this, then I'll write it, as opposed to sitting around writing songs to put in the war chest. Uh, and Mad Cat writes tunes, uh, like, like for example, Win the Lotto, that's on this record. <laughs> I mean, that's a tune that he had on a solo record that, you know, the, he was playing ukulele and singing. Right. But I, was, but, you know, he, I said, hey, Mad Cat, you know, we're at a sound check, and I said, what if I do sort of a Dr. Johnny piano thing on that, you know, and, and what if we all harmonize it and, you know, whatever. I mean, to me, that sort of sounds kind of more like the band, you know, than anything else. I, yeah. I don't know what it, we're not trying to sound like anything else, but we, you just do it. Sure. Know? And uh, Joel writes great stuff. Joel just did his own solo record that, uh, you know, he got obsessed with doing it. He has a terrific voice, kind of like a Vince Gill kind of thing going on. And it's really wonderful. I mean, I don't know what he's going to do exactly. I mean, it's printed up, it exists, and everyone I play for it goes nuts. I said, Joel, you've got to, like, get a publicist or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but if, I said, or, or get some like really skinny looking person who looks like they're about 16 on the cover and hide yourself. And they all think this is the greatest music. I mean, exactly and right. Joel being bald doesn't exactly look 16 anymore. <laughs> so, but, uh, and Matt got does lots of solo records. Mm. So we just come together and, and have a good time and start playing it. And, and honestly, some of the material we've been playing for a very long time, and we find it very hard to take it away. Like like Blue Rondo, I played with Bill Crowfoot. I played, and then on this record, we're very lucky because Dave was around, so he came in and started jamming in the blues in the middle. But when you see three guys playing that music, it goes flying by. It's a great piece by Dave in the first place, and then that combination of guitar and piano and harmonica—it's just so weird that it's hard to give it up. Like, oh, let's not do Blue Rondo. No one likes that. I mean, it's like, right. <laughs> the hardest thing for us when we're playing is to replace material because it's because the, the stuff that we have works so well. Sure.
you mentioned, of course, uh, Dave Rebeck, who guests on this record, and is also a fantastic clarinet player. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's another great treat that makes this record so fun, is that Joel Brown's father, Frank Brown, um, was a very good clarinet player that at one point in his life was asked to go on the road by the Dukes of Dixieland. And he looked at his kids, including Joel, you know, crawling around on the floor and said, nah, I better just stay a school teacher where you have, you really do make a grand salary of $4,000 a year, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever it was, you know. Right. So, uh, and then uh, this uh, record was recorded up at um, Saratoga Springs, which is where the great racetrack is. Mm-hmm. And, and Joel's dad, you know, is still teaching. Every time he tries to retire, he goes away for you, and then they beg him to come back. You know, the new kid doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Get back here. <laughs> but sometimes his dad would play. It's a, it's a name like the Red Hot Foot Warmers or some kind of Dixieland group, like he would see at Disneyland or something sure. at the Saratoga racetrack. And... I've done gigs where, where Joel sat in with when Bill Crow was alive with us, and 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 um, Frank Brown, the clarinetist, has sat in with Mad Cat Joel and I, and he's met Dave before, but they'd never played together. That night, that stage, that moment was the only time they had ever played together. And for Frank Brown, this was like, you know, like the, the dream of his life, like the turning down the Dukes to Dixieland re- redeemed. Right. It only took sixty years or something to. To get back to that moment. Oh, and it amazing. was so cool because I thought, you know, I mean, the audience loved him. It sounded like almost uh, just as much as they loved Dave. And they loved the vibe that there was these two old timers, you know, playing with their sons. Not that I'm a spring chicken myself, <laughs> you know, at this point. But, but you know, you can really hear that on the energy uh, of the record, which I think is, is so pure and so exciting. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe our luck that we actually captured that. You know, that the, the, the tape was rolling, as they say.
I was listening to uh, this show called Risk. Uh, it's a po- storytelling podcast, and there was a guy telling a story about a year that he'd spent working in a senior citizen's home. And it was a very like, kind of loving, respectfully told story. And it struck me that the, I think the reason it moved me so much uh, was that there's so little really honest respect kind of paid to the the oldest generation that's still around. And one thing I've always really dug about the jazz world is that doesn't seem to be the case here. People really actually do seem to respect the players who blazed a lot of these trails. And I mean, probably these days your father foremost among them, I would think. Yeah. Uh, so when you say that, that the, you know, the crowd is really into seeing guys of this generation play, I mean, it, it seems like in this world there still is a respect and a recognition that, you know, without these people, there wouldn't be all these... <laughs> These other younger guys. These yeah, that's a good observation. Guys. It's it's really true amongst any kind of musicians. And boy, when uh, when Billy Taylor died last year, I went up to Riverside Church. That's a big ass church, and it was packed. It sure was. I saw so many musicians, and then you see, you know, that was the kind of spirit that uh, Billy Taylor, uh, rather than hoarding his connection, was always trying to connect people. And, you know, that was just one of the things where it's all just manifest. There, there they are. All. all those people are there out of love for Billy as a generous spirit. And, um, yeah, the young musicians, you know, they're always t- talking about, you know, Clark Terry and the guys that, you know, and, and my dad, you know, I, I got to say, honestly, I, I highly doubt he's he's going to be out playing anymore. It just It just gets to the point. You know, everything about being a jazz musician, I talked to my brother as I took him to the airport right before this interview. Um, you know, instead of getting easier as you get older, it all gets harder. Mm-hmm. Never mind your health. But, for example, he's a drummer. We used to be able to tip the skycaps who often were musicians and their day gig was a skycap. You give them 20 bucks, you get your drum set on. Then it became like, well, I'm going to take a risk. I could get fired. So then it became you had to tip them 50 bucks, you know. Then it's like the computers control everything. So it's like they can't been the rules at all so then you start you know now it's like 300 dollars in overweight for your drum set now it's to the point that you could buy a new drum set for every gig we have that we fly when you pay the overweight both directions so now we have to rent drum sets which means my brother dan never has the drum set that he likes and he's used to and you know and it's we have a tour of russia coming up and we're talking about you know well maybe what we should do is uh i'd rather buy a drum set in Russia that we got used to and used for t- three weeks while we're there that we donate to a school then spend the money to, to, to give it to, you know, United Airlines or whoever right. it's going to be. You know, like, <laughs> so, and, of course, record company business is, is thriving, as you know. Sure. <laughs> so, so we musicians better have the ethos and the ethics to to embrace each other as a, in the generation that went before as, mm. as road warriors. And, you know, and especially this, this generation, like, I remember now this is probably, you know, 12 years ago or 15 years ago, but I took my son to go see Saving Private Ryan. And when he saw that and knew that my father was in Europe and, you know, landed on that beach like, a, you know, five days after the worst day, and just like, man, his eyes open, like, wow, you know, my grandfather was part of that complete, you know, from another planet insanity. Yeah. And um, so I think that, you know, as Tom Brokaw said, I mean, I really do think it's the, the greatest generation. And, you know, my dad uh, is 91. And I don't know what the figures are, but it's pretty massive. Like, you know, so there's a thousand guys a day dying that fought in World War Two. you know. And they're almost all gone. Yeah. And if you live long enough like my dad has, you live long enough to endure the pain of seeing all your friends die, you know. 
that's just the way it is. So, you know, after a while, it's the, the music becomes a thing that lives on. And, you know, that's why when, uh, when you get a recording that captures that kind of magic, I'm, I'm just so glad not only because I was personally involved, but just, just so glad that it's a, it's an example that's, you know, when I'm long dead and gone, there'll be some kid out in Calgary or something that will download a hologram of it or some damn thing. And, you can say, wow, there's magic. You, right. know? you want that stuff to live. Well, you uh, you mentioned just a second ago uh, the Ansel Adams piece that you and your dad wrote together, which also involves his, uh, the photography in a way that hasn't ever happened before. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, the hard thing was is the Ansel Adams uh, f- uh, photograph photography estate. That's not exactly how you say it. Phot- photographic trust, I think that's what it is. Um, they are very tight about, because as I explain to people, they don't want to see, you know, like, you know, Adam McDonald's Ansel Adams coffee mugs or, right. or Frisbees or something, you know, and... Um, we really had to work very hard to earn their trust um, to say, hey, look. And, I mean, there were, they actually had these rules, like, you know, you must present 100% of the photograph uh, when you show it. And, and, you know, it's something I'd never done before. So we're writing music inspired by photographs. And we originally, they said, well, how many photographs do you need? And we said, oh, I'm trying to guess. I said, maybe 60, you know. But then when we got to the end, we realized we went that praying, you know, please, God, please, God, let them feel generous today because we needed 101. You know? How did you determine, just based on the length um, of, no. that you well, wanted to I, you know, I had to guess in the first okay. place. So I figured, you know, you don't want to just have a photograph come and go. And so I was just, you know, it was supposed to be a 20-minute piece. So I said, oh, you know, I'll guess, you know, it's three a minute, you know, something like that. And then it turns out, you know, some more slow longer somewhere slower and and with the rules for example one um, interesting uh, discussion that we had was if if there could be any motion on the picture and I was kind of Ken Burnsy style pan and scan or something right. like that well okay. that was forbidden okay. right up the front because that involves doing something that wasn't 100% oh sure right it would just be a partial right. image so, you know, right okay. okay but then I said to him I said but you know what we've discovered and sort of like test screenings and experiments or maybe it's not like a movement it's a test screening but you know you're trying this stuff out is that you know if you just go from one stagnant slide to another stagnant slide it starts feeling like you're looking at you know really beautiful photographs of you know my my trip somewhere like you know when you go to Aunt B's house and she right. says we went to Africa or whatever you know I mean it's hard to believe you could say that about these photographic masterpieces mm. but I just found that psychologically like if you had a picture 100% of an Ansel Adam photograph 
then after you looked at it for about 10 seconds and absorbed it, it started receding very slowly, just to put some kind of motion. It's so much more psychologically involving, or the reverse. So I remember I went to the, the guy that uh, controlled the images and I said, you know, I understand you want to control these, but you've never been able to control whether in a museum, if someone walked right up and looked very closely at the picture or walked back to the other side of the room. And that's all we're asking. And so, you know, we got that permission and, and it made a difference. And, and we had a lot of cooperation from the family where they were giving us photographs. Like uh, what really changed our approach to that is that Ansel Adams almost became a, a piano player, mm. professional piano player. And a lot of people think that might be a jazzy work, but it's not. That's in deference to uh, Ansel Adams' taste, which is classical music. And he wrote a beautiful autobiography, and he talks a lot about how the discipline of, and the structure of classical music uh, found its way into his photography. Hmm. He even has you know, great quotes like he, I think he said that the, um, the photographer's negative is like the score, and the dark room is the performance, you know, that, that kind of thing. I mean, he was getting quite literal about yeah. how he thought about it. Was this a commissioned piece, Chris? Yeah, it was. And it, it became something where we got, um, I think there were eight orchestras originally involved. Uh, it started out that the most you know, intrinsic interest would be from cities that were nearby Yosemite, where mm -hmm. so many of his famous pictures were taken. And it's really a lot of cities in California now have done it. But oh, but one of the things I mean, your listeners will probably be really interested in hearing is uh, is it ended up you know again I'm reading a, an autobiography of some guy I don't know about and getting to know him and the feel of him and writing music based on his pictures, and the Monterey Symphony had like four sold out performances, and we ended up for this like reception of the really core people with the, and we were in Ansel Adams' house where the deck literally overlooks the Pacific Ocean below you. His son now, who's about 80, owns the place. And I'm and uh, he's showing me the dark room. <laughs> I think, wow, this was just a project, you know what I mean? And now I'm, and now it's, I'm in a physical reality. I mean, yeah. it's as wild as like Captain Kirk being beamed up to another planet. <laughs> <Right>. you <know? laughs> and, oh, and that's amazing. the way it was too. I mean, when, when, uh, with Wilford Brimley, with Quiet Heroes, I mean, we did a special performance last year that it made the word about this piece made it so that we were doing it with the president's own United States Marine Band. And they took my orchestra score and they gave it to a guy who's probably been in the military 20 years that all he does is transcribe Tchaikovsky or Prokofiev for a band. And so um, he did, you know, 99% of the work, but I consulted and said, you know, I really need one cello player and one violin because that represents the Japanese uh, general and this and that. And it turned out great. And, you know, and then I mean, it's just amazing. There was there was a granddaughter there of 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 the of John Bradley, the sort of the heroic figure of those six guys, and she had never been to see the Iwo Jima Memorial in person. And you know, this is John Philip Sousa's band; it's the one he started. And these guys are great musicians. I'm sitting next to guys that you know they're like seemed like just like you. Then afterwards, I find out that his, he was major so and so and colonel so and so. Like, right. Oh my God, that was a colonel I was just shooting the breeze with there. And I was like, and I'm seeing, you know, you know, like these guys with all these decorations, you know, they're crying listening to the piece. And I mean, it's, it's just weird. I mean, it's such an adventure to be a composer when you take on these historical things. You yeah. never know what's going to happen. How did you and uh, your father work together on the Ansel Adams piece? What was the, the process of co composing like? It, it was really interesting because at the time, uh, Dave liked to uh, 
in the winter when he could slip and fall on his ass up in Connecticut and go down to Sanibel Island. So we each had this book called uh, 400 Photographs of Ansel Adams. And then we would talk on the phone probably every day and say, man, that picture, what do you, does that really get you for some reason? Yeah, that gets me. And, for example, there was a picture of a mission in the southwest. So Dave wrote a little theme of that, and then he sent it by snail mail to me. And uh, then I took it, and I, uh, I said, yeah, I dig that. I see where you're coming from. Uh, but then all of a sudden it became clear to me, like, okay, there's a theme, but now it feels like we almost like I have a movement, or at least a, a section. You don't just want to go southwest on someone for 10 seconds. You know? <laughs> right. So then it became like, okay, so now we need more Southwest pictures so that I can take your theme and, 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 and play it a second time in a polytonal way. And then sure. there's a bridge and this and that. And so I would sort of start expanding it. And, and it actually involved the whole family in a beautiful way because um, when my parents came up from Florida, at this point I'd taken piano sketches of themes, developed the themes, expanded them. And my wife, Tish, and I, were had marked all these different pages like here's another southwest picture you know on three page 355 and then there's another one back on page 16 and so i was playing back the finale thing over speakers and we call it the vanna white syndrome because she was quickly flipping (laughs) as the music's supposed to change you know and my mom started doing this this too so we had this whole thing you know mocked up and then we started working with a a broadway production designer Mm. um and you know it's like okay now turn these this idea into real, you know, pictures. So we're not sure. sitting there like idiots, you know, throwing pages around <laughs> out of a book. You know, you know uh, it's kind of a cliche to say that, uh, that jazz improvisation is just, is the same as composing. It's just happening in the moment. But uh, as I listen to you talk about the process of composing, uh, you know, composing kind of on staff paper or on finale or whatever it might be yeah. in this more classical sense for, keep using terms here. Uh, as I listen to you talk about that, you use a lot of the same terms and you talk about it in that kind of spontaneous way that you all often hear jazz musicians, of which you are also one, talk about that kind of improvising. So I wonder how much that cliche rings true for you in either direction in terms of the nature of composition, sped up or slowed down. Oh, oh I'll tell you, one of my, if I had you know, my choice of what thing to chisel on a big you know, composition department somewhere in a university, it would be Stravinsky's quote, uh, which I hope I'm not butchering, but in, in essence, it was composition is selective improvisation. Mm. Boom. And to me, that says so much. Well, first of all, Stravinsky is just about my favorite composer. And the reason I like it so much, because if, if I would compare it to painting, you know, you have straight ahead music, you have outside, you have dissonance, you have harmonies, you can tell what key it's in. It's fiery, it's programmatic, it's abstract. You know, it's really got everything going on. And um, so many times music will lean, you know, so there might be a whole 20 or 30 years where everything's had like the wildest part of Stravinsky and never, never contrasted with the more tame part. I mean, to me, it's, it's like um, I did a bunch of concerts with the Murray Lewis Dance Company, who was, which is the sister company of Alwyn Nikolai Company, uh, with Dave. It was fantastic working with these dancers. And, and to make a parallel, I would see choreographers choreographers you know have an argument like is it bad to make gestures that are literally with the music like the hand goes up on the downbeat like you know some people oh that's horrible you know and then there's some people that are into the school yes it's a good idea to well why not follow and then i'm going like well duh isn't the right thing to do it's like to mix those things up so they never get boring sure sometimes you're with it sometimes you're without you know and uh 
But that's the thing about Stravinsky is uh, so, sometimes he's dissonant and sometimes he's not. And it's the contrast that's so sweet. And a lot of things for me as a composer, you just sort of discover by doing. I, I was doing a big uh, Christmas extravaganza for Bill Crowfoot. And I was doing this beautiful arrangement of one of the two English versions of this song called uh, In the Bleak Midwinter, mm -hmm. which is a gorgeous, gorgeous tune. The, the, the least known uh, uh, version of it is the most beautiful chord changes. And I was writing this thing, and it was the first time it was being played was by the Pittsburgh Symphony. And it's sort of like, okay, this is a place where if I were really corny, I'm going to put a modulation with a cymbal roll, and then the French horn takes a melody. And, um, you know, part of me thought, well, it's Christmas. You know, if there's any place that should be corny or whatever, I'll do it. Okay, so I did it. And when I got to that point, you know, which I was a crossroads as a composer, wondering if I should do that, if it was too obvious, it was too predictable. And then it hit me, and it was almost like tears came down my face. And it was like the obvious thing to do, but it works so great. And you get this vibe, you can sort of feel the vibes in the audience. I mean, it was totally the right thing to do. And so I, I taught myself a lesson, is that sometimes um, the thing that you expect to happen is the right thing to do. And generally what I try to do in my writing is, is build in a lot of surprises. But now, I've, in the same way as the gesture on the beat or is the gesture off the beat, is the music going to be filled with surprises or should it be filled with, uh, you know, things that you expect? And it really should be all of those things, I think. Yeah. Well, and as you mentioned, uh, in, an, in an era in which sometimes doing what's expected is seen as a bad choice, that can be surprising in and of itself. I mean, doing the perfect thing can, in fact, be a surprise yeah. <laughs> you know, rather than avoiding it yeah, to make yeah. a point. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, um, I haven't even like, seen the movie War Horse. But I've heard some people say that, you know, it's really good, but they didn't like it that much because it 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 did everything it was supposed to do and you knew mm. it was coming. And then, for example, I, I saw a movie that exceeded my expectations, My Week with Marilyn. Did you see that? I movie? haven't seen it, no. It's great. It's it's so lyrical. I think when a movie achieves lyricism uh, of any kind, that's truly magical. Uh, you know, and it can happen sometimes. Can you uh, can you just mention some of the things that are coming up for you, uh, kind of performance-wise and moving around the world-wise? You you talked about some of it 
uh, during the course of the interview. Yeah. Uh, well, let me see. Schedule-wise, uh, I'm going out to uh, Minnesota for another performance of uh, Roosevelt and Cowboy Land. Then, oh, Triple Play is playing at the Dogwood Festival in Knoxville, which is one of those crazy things, like, you know, where there's hundreds of stages around town. Right. Uh, then, I'm laughing, but I think it's it's great. Uh, I'm now a grandfather, and my three-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, Peyton, is so thrilled because my wife and I and my daughters and uh, the kids, we also have a, a six-month-old daughter, we're going to Disneyland, the all-American reg thing to do. <laughs> She is so excited. You know? That's great. But, you know, there's a child in me. I was like, I still remember when I was a little kid, my favorite thing is I love the Peter Pan ride. But this is, you know, when you're like three years old. Right. So I'm like, I earned such street credibility with my granddaughter because she had a friend that was four who went down there and he said his favorite ride was Peter Pan. Like all of a sudden, oh, grandpa, man, he's so hip. He's got it down. And then, and, you know, that's one contrast. And then getting back to the professional world uh, of music, uh, we're going to be doing a tour of Russia with the Brubeck Brothers Quartet, including playing with the uh, Russian National Symphony Orchestra in Moscow and then doing a bunch of concerts at Jazz Club and going to St. Petersburg and other cities. And right after that, I'm going to be uh, playing my trombone concerto with the orchestra in France. And we're, and we're also doing Ansel Adams, so a combination of those things. And... Uh, and also, I just got out of the studio working on Brubeck Brothers Quartet record, which I'm trying to finish up. And there's another. Will that be out this year, probably? Uh, yeah, that should be out in a couple mm -hmm. months. And um, and another thing I'm excited about, even though it happened about five years ago, this is this record. Uh, we have to wait until the Zankel record sort of, you know, does its thing and then sails off into the sunset for a while. But we have in the can a record of triple play with a Singapore Chinese orchestra. Oh, cool! Which is awesome. It is so cool. I that's mean, traditional Chinese instruments. Tra and yeah, oh, plus, plus blues harmonica. Wow. And all the things that we do. Uh, and there's some stuff. Like on, on Zankel, there's, there's a version of Kodo song mm -hmm. that we did. And that came out beautifully. But this is the only version where you really hear an instrument that is like a Kodo being played. Plus all the Chinese instruments with it, and it's and it's just killing. So uh, just quickly tell the story of how that even happened. This, the conductor conducts uh, uh, the South Bend Symphony. His name is Sung Ye, and also conducts in Singapore. And he said, you know, that we would be a hit in Singapore, and we were skeptical. Plus it's <laughs> plus it's like a twenty hour flight. That makes me <laughs> right. twice as skeptical. <laughs> but we went over there, and it's one of those things where I know this is really a crazy idea, but the state really supports the orchestra. They have their own building, they have their own hall, they have their own musicians, or in salary. It's the only concert I've ever been involved with that that I'm saying enough rehearsal. Let's just do the gig. You know, we had like five <laughs> rehearsals, and then right before the gig, you know, I, I said, "Yeah, this is sounding really unique and different." I mean, you not often you hear a, gr a blues group with a Chinese orchestra. Too bad we're not going to record it. Oh, you'd like to record it? We have Pro Tools, you know. <laughs> so we did, and uh, that we, what we've had trouble is, you know, sort of negotiating. Uh, not it's just communication problems, you know? sure. And but it's finally, I think we're over that hump, and so it's coming out in Singapore, um, I think, in, in about a month, and uh, we'll put it out in a few months over here. Do you have any ballpark estimate as a as a final question of how many orchestras have either played your music or you've played with yourself? Oh God. It sounds like I dozens just from the story. But, yeah, because there's a, the thing that's really giving me lots of exposure with orchestras is this piece I wrote for a group called Time for Three. Right. You know that group? Yes, I didn't even ask you about that, but that yeah, was yeah. on my list of things to ask you about. Yeah, so Time for Three, I mean, they're they're young and energetic and hitting the road, and you know, they're about 30-ish, and uh, boy, there was like 
eight commissioning orchestras and plus a violin concerto. So I mean, this it's it's a lot of stuff. I mean, I'd say last year there may have been forty performances of my music for, of different things by orchestras around the world. Yeah, so, that's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's it's amazing. I guess my dreams are coming true. Yeah. Although I actually dreamt I would be sort of a a creative rock star, you know, when I started when I was seventeen. <laughs> well, I ain't a creative rock star, but I am a creative person. Still. That's right, exactly. And, and there's still time. Yeah, no. And and it's it's you know it's great to be able you know sometimes I do educational outreach you know and, and I'm like talking to people and as you can see it's not like I have no personality. And I'm looking at these kids in public schools as part of outreach, and they are like you know like, like a zombie came and. Stuck a straw up their nose and sucked their brains out. I mean, they're just so dead to the universe. I'm thinking, is this like nutritional from when they, or what is it? You know, and then finally I'll say, like, do you guys want to work at McDonald's the rest of your life? Uh, you know, do, do, do you realize that if you apply stuff, you could actually make your living by being not just a consumer of everything that someone wants you to consume, whether it's that movie about fast cars or that stupid hamburger that's going to kill you or smoking so you look cool but your lungs explode, you can actually think of things that other people might consume. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you just, you know, you want to like slap them and like, you know, wake up, you know, and thank God, you know, sadly, you know, like one out of 20 people might understand what you're saying. You know, and, and, and sort of wake up. And sometimes I wonder if America really, someone, they, whatever the they is, like, you know, Dick Cheney times five million, do they really want Americans just to be so dumb that we'll just consume what yes. they want us to consume? My answer to that question would be emphatically yes. Yeah, that is, I mean, you that know, is exactly the I mean, wish, you talk to people in Russia, end. the Russians were making vodka wildly available to the working class people in factories because they want them to have a lifestyle. Where they get drunk enough that they're too drunk to get dissatisfied. You know? It's like, yeah. It's like flooding Watts with crack or something. Well, we've <laughs> got to end this interview to go watch Dances with the Stars now, so. <laughs> <laughs> or The Simpsons. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or Family Guy. <laughs> My guest is the composer and multi instrumentalist Chris Brubeck. Uh, his band Triple Play has a new album called Live at Zankel Music Center. And as you can hear, uh, if you live near almost any symphony orchestra, you'll get to hear some of Chris's music one of these days. It's been such a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Yeah, Thanks for doing it. Yeah, great to talk to you, man. You Thanks know, a lot. You know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> it's blues time. Woo! 
Frank, play me some blues. Music from Chris Brubeck. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Mudat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please do become a member. You can do it for as little as ten bucks a month or $110 a year. It is quite literally your support that keeps the show going. And then get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.